according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. Our chapter-by-chapter summary of the book has brought us uh, 20 weeks into this study, into chapter 20. And so far, God has been very gracious and allowed us to cover one chapter per Sunday, and uh, some chapters are harder than others. Uh, today, though, look at that. It's only uh, six verses long, so we should, we should do okay. Uh, maybe. All right. We'll, we'll see how that goes. I know in the Galatians study, we've been in the same stretch of six verses now, I think, for three or four weeks, five weeks. It's uh, been lingering, and yet uh, that's good, all right, because there is length and width and height and depth, and God in His Word has provided multi-dimensions of study, and uh, in the Galatians hour, 9.30 on Sunday mornings, also Wednesday night, we, uh, we plunge into the depth. Here at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, we have more of the, the breadth or the height. Actually, I view, I view Wednesday mornings more as the height in Life of Christ and Proverbs. That takes us to the heights. Uh, but here we're getting uh, length and breadth. We're getting the big picture view of the Old Testament and uh, covering... Uh, the plan is to do Isaiah in 66 weeks and follow that right up with Jeremiah in 52 weeks. So we've got more than two years worth of material here between Isaiah and Jeremiah that uh, should be a blessing for this congregation in, uh, in the dark days ahead as far as where our nation is headed. So uh, keep that in your prayers as well. Speaking of prayer, let's open with a word of prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we are once again undeserving, unworthy. Who are we, Father, that we should that we should enter into your counsel? Who are we that you should explain yourself? And yet, Father, you do, because we are in your Son. And who we are is not us any longer. The life that we now live, we live by faith. And it's not us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And Father, he is the one who is worthy of all things. You have exalted him. It is your purpose to exalt him above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And Father, I thank you that we are in him for all that we are and all that we do, including our time in your word today. Open our minds, increase our capacity to apprehend your truth in its length and width and height and depth, Father. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might receive this word implanted. And I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 20. In the first year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips, take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope where we fled for help to be uh, delivered from the king of Assyria. And, and we, how shall we escape? How shall we escape? 
All right, and that's it. Six short verses and uh, pretty straightforward. And yet, man, can you imagine the humility of Isaiah to go about naked for three years, to go about in prophetic ministry as called to do by the Lord at this time? All right. So here's, uh, here's what we've got to look at. Unlike the eschatological messages of the previous chapters, this chapter, chapter 20, details events which would transpire in Isaiah's day. Matter of fact, when we reach verse 1 here, we start coming into some more comfortable terms. We start to uh, find expressions that, that we like that because it, it, it orients us to the text. It orients us to time and date and place and person. All right? The year that the commander came to Ashdod. All right. We can start to fix a message based on that year. We can uh, start to do our studies on Sargon, our studies on Assyria. We can, uh, we can do the geography work and have an understanding of Ashdod one of the leading cities of the Philistines. And, and right away, we've got, we've got a, a context, a frame of reference that's going to help us in this chapter. One that maybe we've struggled with in recent chapters because the markers in those texts are pointing forward to the coming es- uh, in, in eschatology. They're pointing forward to the end times. They're pointing forward to what we know of as the tribulation of Israel and the second advent of Jesus Christ and the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on the throne of David. Things that are still future from our standpoint as 21st century American Christians. But here, we have a message that's pinpointed to the life and time of Isaiah himself. And so um, everything is going to come zooming down now to Isaiah, to his experience, to his message, and uh, some things that hopefully, or that we will be seeing upcoming. We're going to see the dynamic between Isaiah and King Hezekiah. We're going to see the, the dynamic of some narrative, some things that maybe we were more comfortable with than the, than the eschatological prophecies, as it were. All right? So we're going to have the narrative of, of story, whereby the city is surrounded and the Assyrians are threatening and the king is on the verge of going wishy-washy. And the, the prophet stands at the king's side and says, don't you dare, right? stand firm. And, and all of the adventure that comes in a, in a story like that. So we have those chapters coming up. And something similar happens here, all right? When the commander came to Ashdod, who is this commander, as it were? An interesting Assyrian title called the Tartan. Never heard of it? I'm not surprised unless you have a background in Assyria studies. Uh, The Tartan was the Assyrian commander-in-chief. There were really three high officials under the the politics or the governance of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. You had the king himself, you have the Tartan, you have a third guy. The Rab uh, Saris, a uh, fellow that we're going to see coming up when uh, Jerusalem's going to be under, under siege. But the Tartan, it's not a personal name, it's a title. Uh, when this guy dies or gets fired, then somebody else will be assigned this. It's kind of like Pharaoh. You know, it's, it's a title, only it's Assyrian rather than Egyptian. The Tartan was the Assyrian commander-in-chief, second in rank only to the Assyrian king. And as vocabulary goes, it only shows up twice in the Hebrew Old Testament. It only shows up here and in 2 Kings 18, which uh, we'll take briefly, just a quick look at it. 2 Kings 18, only because it'll do us a favor down the road when we get to this point in, uh, in Isaiah. 2 Kings 18, 17 is the other use of Tartan. So um, context for this is... Uh, King Hezekiah starts his reign in verse 1. He has uh, victories starting in verse 7. Judah gets invaded in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. 
And uh, it's useful, by the way. If you're going to be a real student of the Old Testament, it's useful. If you know the difference between Sargon and Sennacherib, if you know the difference, uh, you know, and then you ask yourself, well, who was, who was uh, Tiglath-Pileser and who was Assurbanipal and, you know, all these assortment of names, uh, you say, well, what does it matter? It does matter. It's significant because we realize the Bible is not mythology. It's not made-up stories. It is God's story as uh, takes place in history, in the reality of history as it unfolded. All right, so uh, Sennacherib now is sending his forces against Judah. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is going to send a messenger to the king of Assyria at Lachish. Um, You know, obviously peace is always attained through negotiations and and diplomacy. And so he sends a a messenger to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I've done nothing wrong. Uh, Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. In other words, uh, be nice, don't kill me, and I'll pay a tribute. All right. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord. So he starts plundering the Lord's temple to pay off this blood money in the treasuries of the king's house. And so at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple and uh, from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Not good, all right? Not good. Not trusting in the Lord not even consulting of the Lord's prophet, since uh, Isaiah is on hand to to ask. And then verse 17, the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh, three officials from uh, Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Does that sound familiar? Have we had a class before on that very field and that very conduit? All right. And they called to uh, the king Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, to Shebna, the scribe, to Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. And uh, they'll have some more taunting back and forth. Anyway, we'll get into that. That's future. But in any event, this is simply to introduce the title, the Tartan. Understand who he is. Understand that when he speaks, he's there representing Assyria. He's representing the king of Assyria. And uh, this is what's happening when he is crushing the Philistines at, uh, at Ashdod. Ashdod was a leading city of the Philistines. If you've done Old Testament work before, particularly in Joshua or in Judges, uh, you've probably encountered it. Maybe in 1 Samuel you've encountered it. Ashdod was a leading city of the Philistines. According to Joshua 13.3, there was a pentapolis. Okay? Uh, the Philistines organized themselves into five leading cities. They had other smaller towns and villages, but there were five leading cities. And uh, in Joshua 13, they are described. Interestingly enough, some of these names remain to this day. There is a modern-day Ashdod, by the way, in Israel to this day. And uh, we'll show you that here in a moment, if, uh, unless the Internet's crashed again, but we'll show you that here in a moment. Joshua 13.3. Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And, and, thanks, God. All right. And uh, very much of the land remains to be possessed. And this is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and those of the Geshurites. See, they had not been completely obedient in the conquest. And uh, from Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it, is, it too is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, 
So you have the Gazite. He is the Lord of Gaza. You have the Ashdodite. He is the chief Philistine uh, general or, or leader, chief of uh, Ashdod. The uh, Ashkelonite from Ashkelon. The, the Gittite from uh, Gath. Okay? Uh, Goliath was the Gittite from Gath. And then the Ekronite and the Avite. And it goes on to describe here the unconquered territories. In fact, it was unconquered by Israel clear up until King Uzziah's time. Not even David conquered the Philistine regions. He served the Philistines for a time. He did draw some tribute from the Philistines for a time because he defeated them soundly every time they went to battle. But as far as bringing an occupation to those cities and bringing an end to their political governance and subjecting those cities to Jewish rule, not even David did that. Uh, not until King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26, 6 did, uh, did Ashdod fall under uh, Jewish control. Sometime after King Uzziah, they broke free again. They relied upon Egypt for backup. They relied upon Egypt for their help. And they felt pretty good about that. They felt Egypt helped them get away from the Jews. Egypt's going to help them um, stay safe against the, uh, the coming Assyrians. At least they think so. It won't work, all right? Egypt is having their own problems. As we saw a couple weeks ago, the, the 25th Egyptian dynasty was actually uh, an Ethiopian dynasty. It, uh, the, the Egyptians had come into some conflict from their southern borders. And uh, at this point, Egypt itself is in a bit of a, of a sorry state. So Ashdod had broken free from Judah, but Assyria is going to conquer Ashdod, both in 715 and again in 711 B.C. And what we're looking at here in Isaiah 20 is the second time they would come to whoop up on them was in uh, 711. The first time that it happened, actually 715, I kind of prefer the 717 date better, but that's all right. Um, the first time they came, they removed the, the king, they put a puppet on the throne, they put a puppet on the throne and said, all right, you be good now, pay your tribute, we won't come back and, and bully you anymore. And what happens is they, they got rid of that puppet and they, they put a different puppet on there, an Egyptian puppet. So Tartan comes back and does away with them now in uh, 711 B.C. If you like maps or you like to look at pictures, there you got it, all right? Um, that's the coast of Israel, and uh, Ashdod is a coastal city uh, north of Gaza. Uh, it's not zoomed in enough to see Ashkelon. Ashkelon would be in between Ashdod and Gaza. But you've got Ekron, Gath, Lachish, some of those cities there. And you'll note, if that's possibly not... Uh, if it's light enough to see, it's not too bright in the room this morning. Um, that coastal region is lowland, it's flat, it's good for uh, chariots, it's good for troop movements, it's a lot better than the hill country uh, to the east, all right, where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem, Hebron, all those are up in the hill country, it's, uh, it's rougher terrain. And so if Assyria is going to come sweeping from the north and they're going to attack Egypt, then it's very likely that they're going to leave Jerusalem all by itself, at least for a while, while they are on their way marching down to Egypt. Ashdod, though, not so lucky. <laughs> All right? If Assyria is going to head down to, to Egypt, it's Ashdod's right there in the way, and Ashdod has to fall. And uh, that's, uh, that's the nature of it there. Come back tonight at 6 o'clock, and we will show you some of the new features related to the Logos Atlas, related to uh, some of the other map study that you can do. And these are fun. Um, these are fun for different reasons. Again, assuming we have internet. Here we go. And so this will load, and not only will it load, but then you're able to zoom in some more, you're able to get more detail. You can keep zooming in until Ashkelon appears and some other places appear. You can zoom back out and you can drag it. It's not a static um, map like you would have 
uh, in, on a PowerPoint slideshow, for example. And then there's even a, a neat button where, I'm going to show this off at 6 o'clock when we do this, you can actually open Google Maps and it'll show you the modern day uh, reality of what the land is looking like today in the land of Israel. And what do you know? You've got Gaza, you've got Ashkelon, and you've got Ashdod. They still to this day have the same names that they had back in, back in Bible times. All right? And I find this valuable. I find it valuable for my own children. I find it valuable for any, any believer to realize when they're studying the Word of God, they're not studying uh, some kind of a, a fiction or a mythology or some kind of, a, you know, hats off the Tolkien or whatever, but you're not going to find Mordor, um, you know, or, or Middle Earth, all right? But I do find Ashdod and Ashkelon, and I find Jerusalem, and I find the reality of what we're, uh, what we're dealing with in, in our day and age. And that's a good thing. All right. We even have, uh, not really a photograph, but we do have, archaeology has uncovered uh, a picture of, uh, of uh, Sargon and his tartan. All right? The, the very folks that are mentioned here, archaeology has uncovered a uh, kind of a pillar, all right, and uh, testifying to some of their great victories, and uh, they're kind of fun to read. Uh, usually there's a lot of uh, boasting, a lot of exaggeration, and if you read the Assyrian records, they never lost a battle. But uh, if you read the, the Babylonian records, you start to find out uh, those are the guys that beat the Assyrians. Then you find out about the battles the Assyrians actually lost. Uh, but anyway, there's, uh, there's Sargon II and his commander-in-chief. And uh, a bit of uh, archaeology that is presently in the British Museum. Sargon's preoccupation with northern affairs may have encouraged the southern provinces to make one last attempt to free themselves from the Assyrian yoke. Reading from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. Um, there's a long article there, by the way, and if you want a copy, let me know. I can email that to you. Um, Azuri of Ashdod, who had been promised assistance from the vigorous new leadership of Egypt's 25th dynasty, revolted against Sargon in 714 or 713. The Egyptian aid did not materialize, however, and Sargon crushed the revolt in 711. Apparently, Judah took the advice of Isaiah and his supporters at this point not to concur in Ashdod's rebellion, for she escaped, and she does escape. The problem, though, is that, as we're going to see, uh, you can learn a lesson, and you can have a victory, but you have to keep applying that lesson next year, and the next year, and the next year. Because even though you maybe had a victory in 711 BC, there still is hanging over your head a possible Assyrian invasion. And maybe in 710, or 709, or 708, maybe in in 700 or 690, at some point down the road, you are still got that threat over you and the temptation is going to be there saying, hmm, maybe, maybe Egypt will bail us out. Maybe we can trust in Egypt. Egypt has chariots. Egypt has horses. Egypt has, has is gold. You know, we can, we can make friends with Egypt and they'll save us from the Assyrians. All right? Never learning the lesson that, uh, that you should have learned way back when. Okay? way back when they thought they could trust in Assyria to help them against Damascus, to help them against the northern kingdom of Israel, if you remember those lessons, all right? Because the southern king was under threat from Damascus and from the northern kingdom, and he thought, he, he thought Assyria could bail them out. We're going to study these principles here this morning. Well, let's talk about naked Isaiah, all right? Say, Lord, really? You know? I would love it if, if heaven would be open and the voice of the Lord would shout, uh, go and loosen the 
necktie from around your neck and never wear such ever again for the rest of your life. All right, well, hasn't happened yet, so I'll be obedient to the Lord. Neither has he told me to go buck naked as uh, Isaiah is going here. And that's where I was expecting an amen to come from the audience, but that's all right. (laughs) Prophets of Israel were often expected to portray the Lord's messages in dramatic fashion. And quite often, I call it prophetic pantomiming. They were quite often, they had to play a role or they would dramatize something in, uh, in what they were communicating. And that became the visual aid. That became the, that was the PowerPoint slideshow they had in the 7th century BC, all right? It was their lives and what it was that they did and how they dramatized the commands that were coming from the Lord. In fact, we've got examples from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel, even uh, a church prophet, even uh, Agabus in Acts 21 is going to uh, put on a little bit of a drama as he communicates a message from the Lord. So uh, take a look at these. We'll see the, the, the uh, skits that they put on or we'll see the actions that they took and how it was that they communicated truth. They communicated doctrine. So Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13. Thus the Lord said to me, go and buy yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, take the waistband you have bought, which is around your waist and arise, go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a crevice of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the waistband which I commanded you to hide there. Now, what shape do you think that waistband is going to be in now, at this point of time? So I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it, and lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, as just so will I destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them, let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. And this is what Jeremiah got to do. He got to walk around with his waistband, got to show it off, got to tell, hey, you know where this waistband's been? Do you know where you're going? (laughs) Okay. And that was his visual aid. That was the demonstration that corresponded with the prophetic utterance. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise and for glory. But they did not listen. Okay, God has a plan, but God's plan also includes volition. And when volition is exercised in a negative fashion, what happens? Okay, well, God's plan doesn't get thwarted. But it does mean that discipline is coming your way to bring your volition in line with the will of God. Other consequences of your, of your rebellion also will unfold. A few chapters later in Jeremiah 19. All right, so stay tuned. Probably about 50 weeks from now we're going to be here. Or something like that. All right. Jeremiah 19. Thus says the Lord, go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and and, uh, proclaim there the words that I tell you. Now, do you think a 
a potter's, uh, you think this is going to have any prophetic significance related to a potter's field, related to a a broken pottery jar? There's some neat things coming up. So say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods. Anyway, they're going to, they're going to get what they, uh, they're going to reap what they've sown when it comes to it. And uh, then down, get down to verse 10, I'll skip over more of this. It's kind of gruesome. Then uh, get down to, ooh, really gruesome. Uh, verse 10, you are to break the jar in the sight of the man who accompany you. Wow. Would that get your attention if I brought a big jar up here and just smashed it in front of everybody? Probably wouldn't forget it, right? Well, then say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so will I break this people in this city. You know, and try putting that back together again, right? Like your own personal Humpty Dumpty story, Okay. Try putting that back together again. All right, so there's messages there. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for a certain number of days and then roll over and lay on the other side for a certain number of days. Ezekiel chapter 4. So a man, get yourself a brick and place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it, build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps and place battering rams against it all around. Now, that could have been kind of fun, right? Like if you ever build a scale model or you do you know, a train track set or something, you can build, uh, build a little model of the city and siege engines and all, all kinds of stuff. Then uh, get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it, it is under siege and besiege it. And this is a sign to the house of Israel. And as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Can you imagine just laying there day after day after day after day after day? You know, what does that do for your ministry? <laughs> You're just laying around all that time. People come to you. What are you laying there for? All right. And then he gets to roll over. Uh, when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. And I've assigned for you 40 days, a day for each year. All right, there's more. And he has to bake something over dung and he's got to do some other stuff. Later on, his wife is going to die and he's not allowed to, to grieve, not allowed to show any kind of sorrow. And all of these are the assignments that the prophets in the Old Testament were given, men of whom the world is not worthy, uh, as Hebrews 11 calls it, in what it is that they went through. Isaiah, going around naked for, uh, for three years. All right, imagine how, imagine how that went at home, okay? Or uh, the, the, different, the different things there. Even a church prophet performed a similar act, Acts 21.11, when uh, Agabus shows up and... Uh, adds his voice to all the other voices telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> coming to us, uh, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who, thro- who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so when we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began to, begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So even a church prophet 
under the stewardship of Israel in the New Testament, there were prophets, apostles and prophets in the church, and even a church prophet had a similar role uh, accomplishing a, uh, a prophetic pantomime, as, uh, as I call it. Now, naked is not necessarily buck naked, but possibly half naked, all right? And I don't think it's the case, but there are Christians who struggle, and uh, so they find reason, and there are biblical reasons, uh, where naked is not buck naked, uh, but I don't think that's the case here, all right? I believe Isaiah was buck naked, and if I'm wrong, we'll find out when we get there, but I think uh, the, the nature of the shame is what it is when it comes to being stripped, when it comes to being taken away captive, okay? There's other, there's other issues. Um, I've met a whole lot of folks, they don't, they want to think of Rahab as the former harlot, Rahab the previous harlot, Rahab who had been a harlot before she got saved. The text says Rahab the harlot, and that's her occupation, and that's her house, and that's where the spies hid. And uh, I think it's just, uh, there's certain things that believers don't want to come to grips with, and so they say, well, that couldn't possibly be true. God wouldn't ask something like that to happen. And, and I just warn you, anytime we inject our own sensibilities into things to say, well, that can't be, God wouldn't do that, what does the text say? If the text says he did, then he did. And deal with it after that, all right? Adjust our sensibilities to what he is, what he's teaching in his word. Now, uh, there are expressions for naked that do, remain, that do mean that only your outer garments have been removed. And if I'll take those backwards, like in John 21, Peter was stripped for work, and yet, um, you know, if they're, if they're down to a loincloth or they're down to their undergarments or what have you, such as John 21, Peter had been stripped for work. And uh, likely, fishermen out there in the boat that stripped that way. Oh, my pages are sticky here. John chapter 21. There are uses of the language where naked doesn't mean totally naked. And I get that. That is legitimate. So... Um, Finally, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. All right. The idea is that he wasn't buck naked, but he had his outer garment off. And then he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> All right. Because uh, he could swim to shore a whole lot faster than the disciples were going to get that boat to shore. They were, they were dragging this stuff full net and having a hard time hauling that in be even harder without Peter there to help. All right. There's also uh, the incident where David is dancing before the Lord and his wife is pretty scornful of him in, uh, in that activity. There's other illustrations and maybe these ones in the Old Testament are better, closer to the time frame anyway for what we're dealing with in Isaiah. But 1 Samuel 19, 24. Uh, Saul stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And commentaries will banter that back and forth and different rabbinic legends back and forth. Was he buck naked or just took off his outer robe? Well, it says all his clothes, stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel, part of his own shame, uh, King Saul's discipline at that point. 2 Samuel 6, here's David dancing before the Lord. And uh, this is a good chapter to turn to anyway, because uh, it comes in the consequence of uh, another one of our Ashdod studies. 
the Philistines had captured the ark and had taken it to Ashdod. And there in the temple of Dagon is where it kept falling over every night. They would find it bowed down to the, <laughs> they would find the altar of the statue of their God bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant every morning. And then they would have to prop their God back up again. And, and then the next night he'd fall down again. Okay. And kind of, a, kind of a pathetic God when he can't stand up on his own and you have to keep lifting him back up again. Eventually though, the Philistines realized we're under a curse. We got to give this thing back. They had to return the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's in the, it's in the, the context there that the, the Jews are receiving their, their ark back and David's leading the parade. David is all kinds of excited and happy and rejoicing before the Lord. And uh, so in verse 14, uh, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So he's not buck naked, he's wearing a linen ephod. And uh, so David and all the house of Israel are bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. And uh, they come into the city, and Michael, or Michal, if you want to give it a different pronunciation, um, give it something that sounds feminine to remind yourself that it's Saul's daughter and David's wife. The daughter of Saul looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart, that he was just embarrassing her to no end. Okay? So they brought the ark of the Lord, set in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. David offered... um, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord and uh, so forth. But then he gets back home, you know, and it's like, you know, pastor thinks it was a great day until he gets home. (laughs) Okay, I'm teasing. Um, When David returned to bless his household, Michal, or Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. Well, aren't you impressive? And uh, he uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So what was he? the word here is our word for naked, but was he fully naked? We saw he was wearing the linen ephod. He just wasn't wearing his normal king outfit. He wasn't wearing his soldier armor. He wasn't wearing outer robes. As far as his wife was concerned, she was, uh, he was out there naked. Okay? It's like if you are dressed insufficiently, Okay, a dad, a dad might look at his daughter, again, where do these stories come from? And say, you're not going out like that, you're half naked. Okay? Different illustrations. So, uh, anyway, we have the context for it there. Verse 14, verse 16, verse 20. And uh, we see what he was wearing, a linen ephod. And uh, she despised him. And in her eyes, he had uncovered himself as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And so David rebukes her, says, look, it was before the Lord, and uh, I'm celebrating before the Lord. And anyway, he rebukes her like Job rebukes Mrs. Job, and she will, she's left childless as a consequence of that Davidic discipline there in verse 20, uh, 23. All right, now, yes, I get that. There are biblical places where naked doesn't mean Buck naked. Naked naked can mean stripped for work. It can mean half naked. It can mean undergarments. It can mean a number of things. However, this passage, I believe uh, Isaiah was likely buck naked. The illustration was for promised captivity as they would strip their prisoners and haul them off in the slave markets. Um, And given there is expressly stated uncovered buttocks vocabulary, and if you really want to have some fun, you can study the Hebrew term. <laughs> and then that opens up other questions. Um, as far as 
uh, Seth, okay? The promised son, Seth, and in the same Hebrew root, uh, the, the Seth or the Sheth from the Hebrew. What is the connection between the son of Adam and Eve and through whom the line of, uh, the line of Christ comes, right? Cain murdered Abel, okay? And then Seth, the appointed one. All right. Anyway, we'll let that go. I'm done with uh, naked for the morning. Hebrews 11 recaps the nature of these Old Testament faith Hebrews. And so a good summary statement comes for us from the Scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11. The things they were asked to go through, the things they went through in obedience to the Lord, the sacrifices they made, the life they lived, and in Hebrews 11, we start to, uh, the author's running out of time. For the first 31 verses, he gives us several examples of believers walking by faith, including Rahab the harlot, walking by faith. That's verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And her house was spared. Her parents were spared. Her family was spared. She was spared as an application of her faith in Yahweh Elohim. What more shall we say, verse 32, for time will fail me. <laughs> I know it well. You only have a certain amount of time on a Sunday morning, and you've got to get through the verses. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak. That's kind of funny. He wasn't really a big hero in my mind when I read through Judges chapter 5. But wait a minute, what's he doing here? Samson. Yeah, I wouldn't put him in my hall of fame, but the Holy Spirit did put him in here. Hmm. Jephthah, another guy with a daughter issue. David, Samuel, the prophets, okay? All of these stories, and we're supposed to learn from them. Every one of them is to be the illustration for us as we walk by faith, as we live the Word of God, as it goes from an academic study on paper to the transformation of how we live who we are, shaped after the image of Jesus Christ and how we live. Samuel and the prophets. We often think of Samuel, as we call him, he's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets was Samuel. And what it was that those men had to go through. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Who was that? Daniel, thank you. All right. Quenched the power of fire. Who was that? Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace, all right? Um, escaped the edge of the sword. That was a lot of them. Uh, from weakness were made strong, several of them. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Got examples of that. Three of them in the Old Testament. Uh, one by Elijah, two by Elisha, and then three in the New Testament by Jesus. Fulfilling the Elijah and Elisha um, typology. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. There's a doctrine. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. You can probably name a few of those, Jeremiah among them. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but that is the church tradition, the Jewish tradition, that is the faith that Isaiah faced. At the end of Isaiah's ministry, Isaiah, the prophet we're studying right now in these 66 chapters, Isaiah, the son of Amos, was sawn in two. That was his 
torture, his martyrdom, his execution. Um, interesting that it's recorded here. It did happen. Um, they were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. We know the ministry of Elijah, dressed this way, living in the wilderness. Birds brought him his food. The ministry of, of John the Baptist. Men of whom the world was not worthy. They, uh, they were never once considered for Time Magazine's Man of the Year. All right. And yet, yeah, the world is not worthy. What's worthy? Christ is worthy. And I love the, the whole study on worthiness. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And yet all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Every single one of them, Abraham and every, every single one of these Old Testament heroes, they, didn't, they never entered into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's still future. They died in faith looking forward to a, an unfulfilled yet certain promise. Unless God's a liar, that promise is still to be fulfilled. And for them to enter into the kingdom means they're going to be resurrected to enter into that kingdom because God promised them that kingdom. The promise was to them and their descendants, not just their descendants. They will be resurrected to enter into that kingdom. So all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, there has to be a church age before there can be a millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. There has to be a reality of Christ and his bride. And this is also preparatory for the coming kingdom that Israel will enter into. Now, the main point of the message. The main point of Isaiah chapter 20, do not trust in man. Do not trust in man. It's loud and clear. You know, they trusted in Egypt, and Egypt bailed. We trusted in English, and or in uh, the Egyptians, and what help do we have? Let me get back now to Isaiah chapter 20. Why are you trusting in Egypt? This theme is going to be brought out in later chapters. It's going to be spelled out very explicitly. So just as, even as, my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush. Now what's interesting, this, this captivity, that's why I say this is fulfilled in Isaiah's day and age. This is a different destiny than the eschatological destiny of Cush, the eschatological destiny of Egypt. Last week we saw, man, there's going to be repentance in Egypt. There's going to be a highway from Egypt to Israel. There's going to be a, an altar and a pillar within the boundaries of Egypt. There's going to be five cities in Egypt that are going to become Hebrew cities. They're going to speak the Jewish language. They're going to be a, a center of Yahweh worship in Egypt. We saw some marvelous, I use that word too much, we saw some great prophetic messages applying to Egypt that they're going to repent and they're going to have actually a role. Egypt and Assyria are both going to have roles in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. You know, if, if you may not even have to flip a page. Just remind yourself of, of the end of chapter 19. 
that uh, verse 23 in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt the Egyptians into Assyria they're going to travel back and forth and what's in the middle there Jerusalem okay and uh, the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians in that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth there's going to be a trinity of blessing one Jewish and two Gentile centers for worship of Yahweh Elohim whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. That verse takes a ton of work. We couldn't do it last week. All right? Not in the format we're in here, covering a chapter a week, chapter a week, chapter a week. But that's a different message in that chapter than what we're looking at today in chapter 20. In chapter 20, Egypt and Cush get hauled away naked, buck naked, to Assyria as prisoners. At the end of chapter 19, Egypt and Assyria are both repentant through the discipline and they're serving Yahweh. They're building highways to worship Yahweh for the millennial kingdom. And so we've got two entirely different messages. And what are we going to do? Well, we could be like the liberals and pick the one we like and pretend the other one's not there. Liberal theology, okay, does that. Pick and choose, cherry pick passages. Or... We can be like the conservatives, theological conservatives. We accept every scripture because God's not a liar. Chapter 19 is true. Chapter 20 is true. And if the outcome is different, we've got to be talking about different contexts, different time periods, different applications. Chapter 20 is Isaiah's day and age, historically fulfilled within three years of him giving that message. And... Uh, or in a short order after giving that message, okay? Historically fulfilled when the Assyrians took them away naked into captivity. Chapter 19 is eschatological. Not yet fulfilled in history. It's still future. It's still waiting for the millennial kingdom. And we've got markers in the text that tell us why we accept it as eschatological. We've been saying this really since chapter 13, chapter 14. We've been talking about the judgment of Babylon, the judgment of Moab, the judgment of Egypt, the judgment of the unnamed nation, the land of warring wings with a tall and smooth people, okay? Which could be the United States, but I'm not writing a book to say that. Uh, we're talking about the eschatological fulfillment of these messages of these chapters here in, in Isaiah until we hit chapter 20. Now all of a sudden, whoa, slam on the brakes. Come back from our future studies back into real time for Isaiah in the year the commander came to Ashdod and three years that... And all of a sudden, we're back within the confines of time. We're back within the confines of Isaiah's day and age. And it's the markers in the text that tell us this. Okay? All right. Anyway, the main point here is don't trust in man. Uh, verse 5, they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. Now, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right? Our hope is in the Lord, nothing else. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, well, so much for our hope. <laughs> okay, behold, such is our hope. We brought this on ourselves. We bet on the wrong horse. Okay, such is our hope where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Look who we trusted in. There's no escape from this. We, look what we've done. Look what we've done, all right? So rather than submitting to God, rather than submitting to the God of Israel, Ashdod trusted in Cush 
and trusted in Egypt. Cush, our hope, in Egypt, our boast. And you understand, Cush was the Ethiopian region south of Egypt, the region that had political control of the reins of Egypt's government at the time that Isaiah was writing. The 25th Egyptian dynasty, if you want to do some studies there. So rather than submitting to the God of Israel, Ashdod trusted in Cush in Egypt. They were warned. Bring the tribute. Submit to the God of Israel. Moab's going to do that. Egypt's going to do that. Ultimately, eschatologically, Egypt will do that. Assyria will do that eschatologically. But Ashdod did not. They trusted in Cush, and it let them down. Mm-hmm. Let's look at Isaiah 31. Let's see the next time this comes back. Isaiah 31. And stay tuned, 11 weeks from now, we'll be here. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. They trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Just describe any Christians you know, you know, or even yourself. You know, leave it generic. There's this guy I know. Uh, that's, that's safer that way, okay? I know this guy. He doesn't trust in the Lord. He only turns to the Lord when other things didn't work, okay? First of all, I tried myself. I tried my friends. I tried this. I tried that. Hmm, maybe I better pray about this. I tried everything else. That's not working. Let me, let me trust in God now. See what he does. They trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek the Lord. And I just, I just laugh. You have these adjectives. These are relative adjectives like many and strong. Are you impressed with that? <laughs> you know, does the idea of many impress you? You know, many is just an adjective that refers to a lot of stuff, but maybe somebody's got more. You got many soldiers? They got more. Are you strong? They're stronger. Okay? Strong is this, you know pathetic in contrast to the outstretched hand of God. Okay? How about we get the one on our side that can't be outnumbered, they can't be outstrengthed, they can't be... Uh, let's get God on our side. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel in order they seek the Lord. Yet He is also... He is also is wise and will bring disaster, does not retract His words. He's not like the Egyptians that say, yeah, we'll help you, and then, oh, I'm sorry, not today. Um... He will arise against the house of evildoers, against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Why are you trusting in them? Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble. And he who is helped will fall. And all of them will come to an end together. It's like the blind leading the blind. They both end up in the pit. Okay? The weak helping the weak. You're going to trust in Egypt for help? Well, who's going to help them if they're helping you? <laughs> All right. Anyway, who's helping the helper? Who's, who's the bodyguard for... We were to, there was one region of Lusaka we were told, don't walk in after dark. It wasn't quite dark yet. The sun was coming down, and we were making our way back from the, the mall to the hotel. And uh, <laughs> we didn't have our guide. We just knew the way, so we walked and, we told Joy it was okay because we weren't alone. That Steve was my backup and I was Steve's backup and it seemed to work out. <laughs> but 
ultimately speaking, if, if that's all we got is Steve and me, then that's kind of sad, okay? We got the Lord, that's better, all right? Now we're safe. The hand of God. How about uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17? Isaiah is not the only one that says, don't trust in man, trust in the Lord. Jeremiah 17. We've got this tandem of messages from Isaiah to Jeremiah. And no surprise, they correlate very well. They complement each other very well. Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. You know, the, re- the only reason you're not trusting in the Lord is because you don't want to trust in the Lord. You don't much like the Lord these days. Okay? Are you intimate with the Lord? Are you in His Word? Are you growing? What is it that's causing you to trust in man instead of the Lord, or mankind instead of the Lord? Okay? You women are off the hook here. It's mankind. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in a stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water. So what do you want to be? Do you want to be the desert bush or the tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. Trusting God rather than man is the contrast of blessings and cursings. The contrast of blessing and cursing. And I love the metaphor. Doesn't this communicate? That scrabbly little desert bush, some little weasley cactus that's just out there surviving in the heat? Or do you want to be thriving? Thriving, well-watered, well-nourished, strong. Much rather be the tree by the water than the scraggly bush in the desert. Say, well, they just trusted in the wrong kind of man. They trusted in the wrong person. If you trust in the right person, uh, then, then you're okay with that. There's somebody that will never fail you, right? There's, a, there's somebody that will stick with you no matter what. Yeah, friends, they may forsake you, but family will never, be, you know, family will never betray you. Oh, no, 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 no. Blood is thicker than water. Family will always stick by your side. You will never be betrayed. You'll never be stabbed in the back by a family member. Really? Micah says something different. Micah chapter 7, even natural families can betray you. Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. Micah's a contemporary of Isaiah. Not surprising that his message will be very much related to Isaiah and Jeremiah. Micah 7, verses 5 through 7. And it's interesting. The reason why this land is under judgment. This was a fun chapter. You remember this from the Minor Prophet series we did? Um... Verse 3 says, concerning evil, both hands do it well. <laughs> they're, they're actually ambidextrous when it comes to evil stuff. Uh, when it comes to serving the Lord and doing good stuff, then they're kind of they're, they're double left-handed. But um, when it comes to doing evil, then both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. A great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. They're all in cahoots. The politicians, the, ju- the justice system, the, all of it's just a big racket. All right. 
The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. There's more of our uh, bush and tree analogies there. Anyway, verse 5, do not trust in a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. All right. Of course, when society is really this pagan and broken down, then you don't bother with marriage or whatever. It's just, you know, her who lies in your bosom. Guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. If there is a marriage in the picture, then daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. We find this is not only prophetically true, but even fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. His own brothers were unbelieving up until the time that he was uh, raised from the dead. Not until after the resurrection did the, the human half-brothers of Jesus Christ believe in, uh, in him. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And some of you have experienced that. I'm not going to ask for testimonies this morning, but you could. You could stand up and say, you know what? The day I named the name of Jesus Christ, I became an enemy. Uh, my, whatever, my Catholic grandmother hated me from that day forward because whatever, I, it was a betrayal of Catholicism or different things or I left the Jehovah's Witnesses or I left Mormonism or I left whatever. Whatever it is that you left when you came to faith in Christ, you may have made some enemies even within your own family. All right, finally, don't replace trusting in God with trusting in politics. Psalm 118, and largely restated in Psalm 146. And how many Christians have replaced political action for spirituality? Well, if we just vote for the right candidate, if we just get the right leaders, and they're confusing the symptom with the cause. Maybe we have the leaders we have because our spiritual life is a wreck and God is disciplining our culture. Or maybe we have the leaders we have because God is pleased with our nation and he's giving us the political leaders we have for our blessing. Some people think that. I tend to hold the first view. I view that that, uh, militarily and economically and in every other way, by every metric, we're in trouble. We're putting sanctions on Israel. We're in trouble. All right? I don't think that's even debatable according, according to Genesis 12. If we curse the Jewish people, we are going to come under God's hand of judgment. But when we exchange politics with spirituality, we're in trouble. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All right? Government officials. Doesn't matter. Prince, a king, a president, governor. Is that where your trust is? Hmm. Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5. It's a hallelujah psalm. Starts with hallelujah. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Anyway, don't replace trusting in God with trusting in 
politics. You just set yourself up for failure, set yourself up for disappointment in, uh, in that regard. All right. Chapter 20 is complete. We'll come back next week and take a look at uh, chapter 21. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you, Father, for the fall of Ashdod. And the fall of Ashdod served to, as an example for Jerusalem that they themselves better not be trusting in Egypt, that they better be trusting in you. And I pray that the fall of Ashdod would uh, serve to warn each and every one of us here this morning that if we're trusting in our, uh, how smart we are to solve our own problems, if we're trusting in, uh, in our money to bail us out, if we're trusting in politics, if we're trusting in our connections, or, or trusting in our good looks, or whatever we're trusting in, Father, if we're trusting in people, If uh, if we're church members and we're trusting in our pastor, Father, I pray that we would stop all that garbage and start looking to you, start looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And Father, uh, people will let us down. Even the best of people are going to let us down. Father, we need to trust in you for all eternity, day by day and moment by moment. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. I thank you, Father, for the one who came and who died and who bore our sins on his person on that cross. Father, I thank you for the life that he now calls us to live, the life of holiness, the life of righteousness. Since he has done so much for us, what are we called to do, Father, for you, for him? Father, I pray that we might live our lives in such a way that appreciates what we have been given. It's all grace, Father. We're not trying to earn it. We're not trying to deserve it. But Father, we want to live in appreciation as a reflection of what you have provided for us. We want to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Father, I pray that today, as you have fed us from your truth, that we will be equipped just a little bit more to be able to live just a little bit better. Father, day by day and moment by moment, occupied with Christ and serving you, with all that we are, with all that we have. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.